Now, turning to our lesson, we are continuing to speak on the topic, the power of positive confession, which is taken from Apostle Frederick Casey Price's book by the same name. Now, in our last session, I concluded the discussion of what we are in Christ, what we are in Christ, which is one of the four principles that God wants us to confess. The three remaining principles you will recall are where we are in Christ, what we possess in Christ and what we can do in Christ. Now, throughout this series and in other lessons taught here at CCC, the elders and I present steps from time to time that you can follow to access the things of God that are contained in his word. Now, while worded differently at times, all of these steps given by whoever outlined can lead to victory if they are followed. Now, as an introduction to the message last week, I included a discussion of a simple process that we must engage in to make these four principles that we're talking about a reality in our life. By way of review, I reduce this process to the following equation, and you have it from last week, and you have it right here before you. K and F plus A equals S. This equation stands for knowledge and faith together plus application. That is, applying the word that you hear and that you stand on in faith will equal success. Now, in the equation, knowledge refers to the knowledge of God's word. And the point made was that there can be no faith without this knowledge. This is why Jesus told us that man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's also why God says in Hosea 4, 6, that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Instead of living by every word, the people are destroyed when they lack knowledge of the word. The word is life. Knowing the word and applying the word is life to those who find it. Now, I pointed out that faith and knowledge were unit because faith is essential to pleasing God. And the fact is, there can be no faith without knowledge of the word. When you say you have faith, that faith has to have a reference point. And the reference point for us believers is the word of God. In other words, I have faith in God's word, God's word that says this about me in terms of my finances, in terms of my health, and so on. So faith is faith expressed in the word of God. This is what Romans 10, 17 is referring to when it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing the word, you develop faith for that word. Ellen 8 teaches on uh, giving, on tithing. You hear the messages on giving and tithing and the return that you are likely to get, as he talked about this morning, and you develop faith for that after hearing it. But if no one ever teaches you that or if you don't hear it, you will have a difficult time developing faith for it. And if you don't have examples in the body of Christ that shows you that it actually works when you apply it, you may not develop faith for it. And we have examples. We have examples right here in this room. And we have our great example in Apostle Price, who went from literally rags to riches uh, by applying this very word. 
also know that simply hearing the word is not enough. We must be doers of the word that we hear and not hearers only. Now, doing the word means taking action that results in acting in faith or acting on the faith that we develop in what we hear. I was just talking about for the word to be impactful in our lives. This word has to be mixed with faith. And we see this told to us in Hebrews chapter four, verse two. And you have it right right there before you. Hebrews chapter four, verse two. It says this. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. You have to add faith to the word that you hear for it to be profitable. Now, after mixing the word that we hear with faith, we must move to the stage of application. Again, as said above, application means doing what the word says. The word says, for example, love your neighbor as you as you love yourself. So if you are loving your neighbor in the love of the Lord as yourself, you are obeying this word. And as I said last time, when you obey a command of God, accept his gifts, claim his promises, heed his warnings and rejoice in his exhortations, all of which are contained in his word that we study, you are obeying and doing the word and are acting to apply the word that you hear to your life. Now, at CCC, we also stress the importance, obviously, of obeying the word of God. And we can see throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament that it has always been a very important point to God that we obey his word. Now, to obey his word includes knowing and having faith in and living by his word. Now, last time I quoted Jesus, who said in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter four, verse four. It is written. This is Jesus speaking. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, he said it is written. I pointed out that the where it is written is in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, which states this. So he, meaning God, humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he, God, might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Whenever you see in the New Testament, it is written. It means it was written somewhere in the Old Testament. And when Jesus makes this statement, you know that it was written in the Old Testament. And when I went over an exercise in this, I pointed out all those places where it was written that he referred to. And um, so anyway, as I indicated last time, this scripture from Deuteronomy is describing the plight, as you recognize, of the Israelites in the wilderness after Moses had led them out of captivity from Egypt. Through the input of the Holy Spirit, it came to me that this story of the Israelites Israelites provides an excellent case study that illustrates all the key points that we dealt with in last week's message. And in fact, in in terms of what we deal with, period, in terms of teaching uh, the word, these key points include the equation, knowledge and faith plus application equals success. And again, obedience that we stressed last time is so important and played such an important part in the plight of the Israelites 
as they left Egypt, moved into the wilderness and moved towards the promised land. I say obedience played such a great part. I guess I should say disobedience played such a great part because disobedience was one of their major, major challenges. So let's look at this case study. Case study is the Israelites flight from Egypt into the wilderness. Now, in Romans 15, 4, we are told this. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. They were written for our learning. So those things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scripture, might have hope. We're supposed to learn from what was written. And so, if we look at the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt, moving through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, spending a lot of time in the wilderness, and heading towards the promised land, we can learn from this story, and we can learn so much. Now, what's important is that their experience, what they went through, what they did, and really what they didn't do, has application to our life today in terms of how we listen to and apply the word of God. So let's go to the scriptures and flush out this story of the Israelites. Now, this is a long story. It goes through about five or six books in the Bible. It starts, the first books in the Bible, it starts with the promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis. So I had to telescope it into about five or six pages. And uh, I didn't even have the time that, uh, that Cecil B. DeMille had in doing the Ten Commandments. He had about two and a half hours to do the story. And he actually did a pretty good job, the story. And he did it in living color. Uh, so the story goes back to when God made the promise of the land, the promised land to Abraham and others in the book of Genesis. And he repeats this promise throughout subsequent books in the Bible. And, you know, I actually went back and read all of this fascinating story. I mean, if you had time, you should go back and, and read this, read this story. And in fact, there are over 170 times that can be found where God repeats the promise. And I'm just going to mention a few in this lesson this morning so you get the idea. So let's start with Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, where God first enters into his covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your seed forever. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. God again says to Abraham, the whole of Canaan, where you are now an alien. Uh, Abraham was dwelling in the land at that time. I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your seed, to you and your descendants. Now, in subsequent scriptures, God makes the same promise about the land to Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, you know, uh, his name is changed later to Israel. Now, as you trace the scriptures, you will see the promise repeated by God in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I had a great time going back and, and reading all this. And, of course, later it's repeated in the book of Joshua. And Joshua is the person who finally leads the Israelites into the promised land. Now, the reason I mention the more than 170 times the promised land is discussed is to make you know that there was real knowledge of this promise among the Israelites. 
The promise was a covenant made between God and Abraham and all the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. It was a promise that the patriarchs and the, and the prophets passed down through subsequent generations like an oral history. So the people were aware of this promise of the promised land. So the first condition in the equation, knowledge, is clearly met here, which is knowledge of God's word. The Israelites had this knowledge. They knew about this word. This was part and parcel of the teaching that was done by uh, their teachers. And so the promised land, a very big thing, even when they were in captivity, uh, the promised land was something that they knew about. Now, faith, the F in the equation, was exhibited by the people in this sense. They believed that a deliverer would be sent by God to take them out of Egypt and into the promised land. They believed, they were believing for a messenger, a deliverer to come and rescue them. So they had this much faith. And as well as, well as you know, the deliverer turned out to be Moses. And the story of the deliverance from captivity in Egypt is told in the book of Exodus and on television every year in some version of the Ten Commandments. I like the original Cecil B. DeMille one. The others are good as well, but it's on television every year. You also know from the story that God performed all kinds of miracles. And the movie's pretty good in showing you a lot of those miracles for the people, not to mention the ones he performed to get them out of Egypt. Uh, you, you recall those, but he performed these miracles, including parting of the Red Sea so they could walk through, providing manna, food from heaven, and bringing forth water from rocks when they had no water. Now, however, what we see is that the faith the Israelites had was at best a wavering faith that shifted and faded as they faced new challenges and disappointments after escaping Egypt. So the promise of the land from God was very clear and knowledge of this promise was made known to the people of Israel, but their weak faith led to all kinds of rebellious and disobedient acts, including, and you recall from the movie, where they fashioned, they melted all the gold they had and fashioned a gold calf with this gold and began to worship it. That's the biggest no-no there is. Why? Because you remember, that's the first commandment. Have no gods uh, before me and worship no other gods but the Lord your God and so forth. But they did that. And... Uh, so God's wrath was heavy, and he told Moses that he would destroy this stiff-necked, disobedient group. Now let's pick up the story. After convincing God not to destroy the disobedient group, we find this in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Exodus 33, verse 11, at the bottom of the page, which says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give. So he's telling them to move out. Now, also, after pleading with Moses, I mean, pleadings from Moses, because Moses knew that he was dealing with a really, really skeptical group, in spite of all that God had done for them. Uh, after pleading from Moses, God agrees that his presence would go with them on the journey to the promised land to reassure the people. The presence of God would go. And you see this stated in Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. And I have it right there for you. And this is God speaking. He says, my presence will go with you 
and I will give you rest. Now, in terms of the overall story, it was during this period that Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God to bring back to the people. And while he was away is when they did all kinds of shenanigans and so forth. Now, God continues to speak and guide Moses. And, and by the way, I'm cutting through so much getting to this. God because I could tell the story over the next 20 weeks. God continues to speak and guide Moses. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 14, verses 33 and 34. Verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, in verse 34, when you have come into the land of Canaan, which I gave you, which I give you as a possession. Now, as we come closer to the Israelites going into the promised land, we find this in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. That's Numbers, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Numbers 13, 1 and 2. In verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, in verse 2, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. So Moses sent out 12 spies. That was one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the men spent 40 days checking out the land. When they returned, and you know this from the story, they, from the mission, they brought good news about the exceptional fruit. You remember they brought examples of the fruit. There was larger pieces of fruit that they had ever seen in their life. The fruit was exceptional. And they found and said that the land truly did flow with milk and honey as the Lord had promised. However, the spies also spoke of how well fortified the city was and how strong the inhabitants were. We find this recorded in Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 and 33. That's Numbers chapter 13 again, verses 31 to 33. In 31, it says, but the men who had gone up with him, the him is Caleb, he was one of the other, Caleb and, and, and Joseph went up. So the ones who had gone up with, with the two of them said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. In verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report, a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone, the spies, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature, meaning big giants. Verse 33, there we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from giants. Anak was a, a giant, and the descendants who were giants in the land were descendants of him. And we, this is the, this is, these are the people who gave the bad report, are, are speaking. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And that's, you could, we, we spent a whole lesson on that. In other words, people see you how you see yourself. If you project a weak, insecure, unknowing image, that personnel manager who is interviewing you on the other side of the, he's going to pick that up. You have to project strength. You have to project knowledge. You have to project a positive image and so forth. Even if you have to fake it, you need to project an image that other people are going to respond to you in the image that you're projecting and so forth. So they said they were grasshoppers in their own sight, so the people in the land saw them the same way. Now, the Israelites believed the bad report, continuing with the lesson, and complained against Moses and Aaron. And that's why the Lord had brought them into this land for them and their families to die. They said 
they should select an elected leader and return to Egypt. In other words, at this point, they were ready to go back into slavery. But Joshua and Caleb, the two who disagreed with the bad report, spoke to the people and urged them to trust in the Lord and reminded them that the Lord was with them and not with the inhabitants of Canaan. They were very wise. We get God's reaction to the people's lack of faith in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. And you have it right there, which says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long, how long, how long? How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? If he had performed one of those among us, we would be believers for life. So God goes on to declare that because of the people's evil unbelief and their acts of disobedience, none of them except Joshua and Caleb would enter the land, quoting God, which I swore I would make you dwell in. God does say this. He says that he would bring in their little ones, meaning the young children of the fathers that rejected his direction to go in and possess the land. So we see this in Numbers chapter 14, verses 32 through 34. God is speaking to them. This is Numbers chapter 14, uh, verses 32, 34 at the bottom of the page. God says this to them. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. 33, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. In other words, all of you are going to die out and your younger descendants will be the ones that he will bring into the covenant land, into the promised land. Verse 34, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, you remember they spied out for 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year. So in other words, for each of the 40 days, he's making them spin and turn in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. And you shall know my rejection. Now, this is a point that's very interesting. Moses himself is prevented by God from entering the promised land. How many of you knew that? Okay, quite a few of you knew. Okay. And why? She just hit it. You got... Boy, you you people know your word. That's striking instead of speaking. But we'll we'll go over it right here. After all of the heroic efforts in leading the Israelites out of Egypt, his efforts to keep them faithful to God, his service to the Lord, and the many things God had entrusted to him, such as the Ten Commandments, Moses did something that that caused God to prevent him from entering the promised land. These events are recorded in the 20th chapter of Numbers. Again, they're at a point where they had no water to drink. So in Numbers chapter 20, verse uh, 2, and you see it there, the word says, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. They were always complaining against the two of them. They were complaining to him they had no water to drink. What happens after that between God and Moses is found in Numbers chapter 20, verse 17 through 12, which some of you already uh, mentioned. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus, you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded. 
Verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? 11, then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation and the animals drank. So you see what happened right there. If you heard what some of the people said, what did God say? He says, speak to the rock. Moses strikes the rock. Uh, the bottom of the page, page 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said this, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. In other words, you did not honor me. Hallow means to honor, to revere. You did not honor me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses disobeyed the word of God when he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock as God had commanded to him. This public display of disobedience caused God to block Moses from entering the promised land. So the mission of Moses and the original Israelites who escaped Egypt was never completed. They left Egypt to go to the promised land. But that original group never got there. Only two out of that original group, Joseph and Caleb. So I say they got out of captivity, but they never entered in to possess the land. So from this abbreviated uh, uh, capsule of a story, I'm going to go over some things that we can learn that are relevant to us today. And uh, I limited it to eight. We could talk about them forever. And we could talk about any one of them for quite a long period of time. But follow along with me. First thing you learn is that God, our God, is a covenant God. And what does that mean? A covenant is an agreement. It's like a legal document. It's an agreement between at least two people. And God governs by covenant. And the promise of the promised land was a covenant God had entered into between himself and Abraham and for the children of Israel. Now, this is important for us to understand. Old Testament scriptures were God's means of communicating to the Jews their exclusive covenant rights with him. This covenant with the Jews was an eternal covenant. God said he would never break the covenant. And this is why learning these scriptures in the Old Testament and keeping the laws that are contained in them is so important to the Jews. The key thing to know is that God never breaks his covenant with his people. And we're reminded of this in Judges chapter 2, verse 1. And I have it there for you, Judges chapter 2, verse 1. And it reads as follows. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Boshem and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And that's true for us believers today. The covenants he made with us, he will never break. Now, as you know, the remaining Israelites who were the descendants of the group led by Moses were finally led into the promised land by Joshua. Now, here's where learning comes in. Just as the Old Testament, at the bottom of the page, just as the Old Testament, Testament contains the covenant rights of the Jews, the New Testament contains the covenant rights of the believer. That's us, our covenant rights with God. As we teach here at CCC, God established our covenant rights with him in and through Christ Jesus. That's what I've been teaching on these past several weeks. As a believer, 
You can only know your covenant rights, such as eternal life and grace, when you know what the word says in the New Testament about these. Today, through Christ, we have a better covenant. And I'm, you, you know the scripture from past teachings. We have a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Hebrews chapter 8, 6 tells us this. Hebrews 8, 6, you can go back and read it. Uh, it talks about through Christ, we have a better covenant made on better promises. Uh, so the promise of gifts and other things of God that are all in this new and better covenant is what we teach about every week. Now, here is learning again. There's a difference between how they receive their covenant rights and how we receive our covenant rights. The Old Testament Jews received their covenant rights through obeyance, through obeying the word of God. How do we receive our covenant rights? Through faith. Through faith. We receive them by faith. As Elder Nate said earlier, you don't have to understand them. You don't have to, 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 to be able to fully explain them. You receive them by faith. God has given them to us. We receive them by faith. And that's faith in God's written word because the covenant is something that's going to be written down. So you re receive it by faith. The simple thing, what does faith mean? Faith means that you trust God's word. You trust God's word. Number two, we must follow God's word to completion. And that's what the original group that left Egypt did not do. The second overall ins insight that we gain from this case study is that to be fully free as God ordains, it is not enough to just get out of captivity. You must continue your journey to the completion point of freedom that God sets forth in his word. The experience shows us that you can get out of captivity but still remain in bondage if you do not enter in and possess the land. You can get out of captivity but still remain in bondage if you don't follow it to completion and enter in and possess the land. Now, for the believer today, Jesus tells us how we reach freedom in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. That's John Chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus says this, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And later on in John 17, 17, he tells us, and he's praying to God for uh, the apostles, and he says, Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So we know that his word is truth. We know that to be free, we need to abide in the word. What does abide mean? It means to live in, take a residence in, spend time in, not casually read it on Sunday morning and never go back to it. It means take up time in it, meditate on the word, study the word, learn the word. So with our personal salvation in Christ, we get out of captivity. But unless we continue our study and acquisition of the knowledge of the word, Ellen Nate was talking about this this morning, which includes so much beyond salvation. There are certain salvation rights. There are countless gifts and promises that God has in his word for us. So it's a lot more than salvation. Salvation gets us out of captivity. But if you don't take it beyond that, you can still remain in bondage to all kinds of things uh, unless you enter in and possess the land. Entering in and possessing land for us is to 
study the word, meditate on the word, know the word, confess the word, believe the word, then God will honor that word in your life. So our acquisition of knowledge at the bottom of the page, our acquisition of knowledge of the word combined with faith, followed by application of the word, uh, is our version of entering in to possess the land. There is no possession of the promised land without application of God's word that is followed to completion. So you can be out of captivity and then only half free if you don't know, understand, receive, and apply that whole package of salvation benefits which Elder Nate teaches. And you should go to those classes in the discipleship training where you get a detailed discussion of your salvation right. Now, number three is that we know that God is in us. But let's look at the Israelites. In this story of the Israelites, we see scripture after scripture that says the Lord was with them. We saw where Moses got God's assurance that his presence would go with them or be with them as they made their way on the journey. Again, under our new and better covenant through Christ, God is not only with us, he is where? He is in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, among several scriptures, uh, we see this. We're asked, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells where? In you. So God is not just with us. God is in us. So you do not have to wonder where God is. His spirit dwells in us forever. You don't have to wonder where his power and his knowledge is. It's in us. And that's why 1 John 4, 4 can say this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who has more power? Who has more knowledge than God? No one. Number four. Another point we can learn. And this is so important. This was not true of them, but it's true of us. We are sons and heirs of God. We see in this story that Moses and all the Israelites and all the Old Testament dwellers are referred to as servants of God. As believers in Christ, we know that we are sons and also heirs of God. Galatians 4, 7, and you have it right there. Galatians 4, 7 says this. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I don't have to tell you that a son and an heir occupies a much higher position on the rung in the family than a servant does. We are sons, we are heirs, so forth. So we receive and we deserve and we are accorded actually better treatment by God because we hold a higher status with him. Number five, we know the power of positive confession. This is what I've been teaching on for the past 13 weeks, the power of positive confession. In this lesson, I am teaching on this power of positive confession. The emphasis is placed on speaking the positive word of God to our life and our circumstances. In this story of the Israelites, and I just recounted the major parts of it to you, we find that they constantly confess negative things about themselves in their situation. And all the challenges, starting with crossing the Red Sea, the children of Israel always confess the negatives. 
which they spoke out loud and complained out loud about, such as we are surely going to perish. Or why did God bring us to this wilderness so we could die? Or let's elect a leader and return to Egypt to slavery. They forgot to confess that God has already given us this land. So let's move out to possess the land. If God has given you the vision about something such as the land, what else does he give you? He gives you the provision. So if the provision means that he's going to defeat the inhabitants for you, he'll do that. And that is, in effect, what he did uh, later. They had an absolute eternal covenant with God in, with respect to this land, and they just neglected to observe it. We don't want to do the same thing with the covenant benefits that we have as believers today. So when the spies returned from spying out the land of Canaan, remember their confession was, we are not able to go up against uh, the people for they are stronger than we. They forgot to say that the Lord goes before us to fight our battles. That had been said several times in, in uh, the Old Testament. Now, Unfortunately, they could not confess what we can from John 1, John 4, 4, which I just recited to you, which tells us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Nor could they confess Romans 8, 37, which says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have those confessions that we can make today that there's nothing, nothing greater in the outer that's greater than he who is within us. And we have that. We're able to say that. We're able to stand on that. We're able to believe that. And we're able to receive what that means in our life. Now, the Israelites in their wilderness plight certainly did not. They did express the truth of this, of Proverbs 18, 21. They expressed this truthfully. Proverbs 18, 21, as you very well know, says death and life are in the power of the tongue. They were constantly opening their mouth and complaining and speaking death to their situation. They spoke death to the situation over and over again. They said that we were grasshoppers in our own sight. And so the inhabitants of Canaan saw us the same way. This is a negative self-image confession. So they constantly spoke death to their situation at every turn. And so they killed their opportunity to enter the promised land. Six, doubt, fear, worry, and unbelief can cancel out uh, uh, faith. We teach that all the time here. Throughout their plight from Egypt to the wilderness, the Israelites' wavering faith was made weaker by their deeply expressed doubt, worry, fear, and unbelief. Unbelief will cancel out any faith you have right off the bat. Moses brought them to the edge of the promised land, but their doubt and unbelief coupled with fear and a negative self-image prevented them from entering in and possessing the land. As stated previously, in fleeing Egypt, they got up out of captivity, but they still remained in bondage, in bondage to their fears and their doubts. So there are many Christians who are saved. In other words, they have salvation, but they remain in bondage to their fears their doubts and their negative self-image. In other words, you can be saved. Remember, when, when you're saved, when you are in Christ and you are a new creation or a new creature, what's new? 
Your spirit is new. The outer man is not new. Your mind, your, your uh, soul is not new. And your soul is what houses your mind and your intellect and your emotions and so forth. And that's why we're told to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so we can bring the mind, the soul in line with the spirit. And then they can get the two of them can gang up on the body and bring the body in line. So, so that's what you have to do. So you can be saved, meaning you'll miss hell, but you can still be in bondage for the next 40 years in your life or your entire life. If you don't enter in and possess the land, meaning enter in and possess the other salvation benefits that we have, the other gifts and promises that God has already provided for us and so on. So many Christians remain in bondage their entire life. So we ended last week's message with the expression that Christians should not should only let God tell them who they are. And he tells us that in his word and not let the world or circumstances Make that call for us. Number seven, we know to be grateful and to give thanks. I can't tell you how important gratitude is. As you can see when you go through the story, they were never grateful. They were delivered out of captivity and they complained along the way. They complained that they were going to be swallowed up by the sea. God parted the sea. They were able to walk along the sea. and, and get to the other side. They complained that they had no food. He brought them manna from heaven. They complained that they had no water. He brought them water and so on. And he constantly performed miracles for them and so on. But they were never grateful or thankful. They failed to give thanks to God. And I found the scripture in Romans chapter one, verses 21. It's not necessarily speaking to them, but it describes them to the point. And you have it right there at the bottom of the page, Romans chapter one, verse 21. And it says this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. God does not like ingratitude. The wise old Roman philosopher Cicero said this, gratitude is not only the greatest of all the virtues, it is a mother of all the rest. Gratitude is so important. Number eight, God's covenant work is always a finished process. And this is so important. They didn't fully understand that. The covenant that they were operating on was that God had given them the land already. That meant that all you had to do was go in and take possession of it. God would do whatever was necessary to ensure that you took possession of it. It was a finished process from the time God made that covenant with Abraham back in the book of Genesis and so on and repeated throughout the subsequent books of the Bible. Now, in reviewing the story of the Israelites, we see that as a group, they failed to realize, as I just said, that God, that, that what God agreed to in his covenant with Abraham and the future children of Israel was already a done deal. See, God, you know this, we talk about it all the time. There is no past, present, or future in God. There's only an eternal now. So he can't, it can't be that what he's going to do for you, whatever he's going to do for you, he's done already. And you have to stay in the awareness of the fact that it's done. 
They didn't. In other words, they had the promised land from the inception point of the covenant with Abraham. They had it while they were in Egypt. They had it when they left Egypt. There was never a time when they didn't have it. They just didn't understand that completely. And what we teach here at Crenshaw is to make sure that you understand that the covenant rights that you have in the Bible that we teach on, they're already yours. You just have to receive them by faith. So in other words, they had the promised land from the inception point of the covenant with Abraham. Their job or mission was to go in and possess the land that God had already given them. If the children of Israel had fully realized this point, they would have known that God would deal with, as in defeat, the inhabitants of the land when that became necessary. When the descendants of the remnant group that God originally, I'm sorry, when the descendants of this original group that died out in the wilderness in those 40 years, when they came into Egypt being led by Joshua, that's exactly what God did. God vanquished the inhabitants uh, before them. And so now as Christian believers today, we know the covenant gifts and promises God made to us have already been done in and through Christ, his son, through Christ Jesus, Jesus, his son. For us, it begins with the everlasting or eternal covenant God made between himself and the son. And I could take a, teach a whole message on that. God made an eternal covenant with the son. And here's some language about that covenant. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. That covenant was that Jesus would bring back to him all of his children that he predestined would come back to him. That includes all of us. Therefore, And when did he predestine that? Uh, the song that, that, that you were singing, he was here before time began. He made that everlasting covenant before time began that we would be brought back to him through Jesus. He made that eternal covenant uh, with, with uh, his son. And, uh, and it's commented on here in Hebrews 13, 20. I included it here so you could have it. It says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant or the eternal covenant make you complete in every good work. So from the eternal covenant, this everlasting covenant, we get the covenant of grace. That covenant was made between God and man, between God and us. In the covenant of grace, God promises man, that's us, eternal salvation, which is based on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Eternal covenant, covenant of grace. There are many who take this covenant of grace and teach it as the ultimate and only needed dispensation. They teach that all you need is this grace. You don't even need faith. You don't need it. You don't need to do You don't need it. And you can, you can do pretty much anything because you're under grace. You're protected. You're like under a protective covenant of grace. And so you don't need, but they forget that it all goes back to faith. We are saved by grace, but what's the rest of the, of the message? We are saved by grace through faith. Okay. And if you don't know where that is, you can look that up later today. Now, we get the covenant of grace between, made between God and us, made between man. And, and you see that right here. So for the believer today, it's important to know that the work, and this is what's important for us to really stay aware of, is that the work of the eternal covenant of grace 
and the work of, I'm sorry, the eternal covenant. That's a covenant between God and Jesus and the work of the covenant of grace between God and us. It's already done. We receive this finished work by faith. Faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. When we accept Jesus as Lord, we are positioned at that point to enter in to possess the land, which includes a vast array of covenant rights and benefits that come with salvation. You know, when you're born again, you receive the measure of faith. When you're born again, you receive the blessing of Abraham. That's the material blessing. It all happens then. So, forth. so but if you don't know that and if you don't act on it, then you may never realize it, which so many don't. It's already done. I've, I've, I've said that so many times in so many messages. God has already done for you all that he's going to do. Meaning he's, he's given it to you. He hasn't. You just have to learn, it, confess it, believe it, confess it, and then he'll honor it and so forth. But it's already done. So part of these covenant rights that have already been given to us include what we're discussing in this series in the power of positive confession. We are confessing right now. I'm teaching on this. What we are in Christ, we finish that. What we have in Christ, we'll start that next time. Where we are in Christ and what we can do in Christ. Those positions and things have already been established by God in and through Christ. We are in the position to take possession of what God has already done for us in Christ through faith. It's not going to happen for us. It's already happened. It's not going to happen to us. It's already happened. And it's only going to happen for us or for you if you receive it by faith and act on it.